Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Middle Earth Mixer. I'm your host, Evan Cooney, and today we are going to be talking about episode 7 of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Now, I I wasn't going to do this. I really did not like the direction of this episode. You know, I was just going to do a Tom Bombadil episode this week, but I figured I should just finish this out. The show's about to be over. A lot of people were asking me what my gripes were with this episode so let's get into it all right so we start off and galadriel wakes up in the immediate aftermath of the explosion of orad ruin or mount doom as it will come to be called and she's kind of disoriented there's a bunch of people screaming there's people on fire there's people dead and she kind of fumbles around for a second gets her bearings the shot actually looks pretty cool so i'll give it that this was filmed really well really don't like that there's no externality on galadriel at all whatsoever she seems barely phased by what's going on, but elves are just built different. So she ends up finding uh, Theo, who is screaming for his mother, and they both walk off together. And then we get this shot of Isildur trying to save some people from the house that's burning down because they were on the inside of it. And it collapses. Also, a bunch of sparks kind of fly into Muriel's face, and that's that opening scene. Also, uh, Isildur's friend is dead. Whatever his name was, whatever. It, it was. It was shot pretty cool. It was. It was a great scene. Uh, I didn't like how Galadriel kind of runs away and doesn't. She doesn't really seem to be helping any of the people that are clearly screaming everywhere. But fine, what are you going to do? You know, Galadriel's got more important things to do than rescue uh, meaningless, crying, screaming humans. Uh, so then we move on to Elrond and the Dwarven storyline. And he is requesting this mithril mining from King Doran. Of which King Doran tells him to leave the room. He says, let me have a moment with my son. This was after, by the way, Elrond says, I am half-elven. I see in them which they do not see in themselves. Which was, uh, I, I like that. It was, it was a good line. It's a young and humble Elrond. And he leaves the room and then Doran says... No, we're not going to do this. It's too dangerous. I'm not going to expend dwarven lives. He says the elves are just trying to cheat death. Because you remember, this is that ridiculous mithril storyline. Apparently, the uh, lands of Linden and possibly beyond are rotting with some uh, degenerative sickness. Some reason that isn't fully explained. This is the pro like w another one of the problems with this storyline here is that their tree is rotting for some reason. So I'm like, is the rot extending to other places? Also, why do they need that tree? If the rot is only limited to the tree in Linden, then like, why do they even need it to live there? I is it? I'm. Like, the show is giving me that it's a representation of their... The, the tree itself is a representation of the light of the elves. But they haven't really done a good job in the show of explaining that to me. Uh, laying that out, why that's so important. Like, if the tree rots, is are all the plants in Linden going to rot? And if so, is it going to extend to other areas of Middle-earth? There's just too many questions that make this storyline annoying. But anyway, oh, he says one thing to Doran, which is a, a line that 
I kind of like and I kind of hate at the same time because he says, uh, he says, great minds have decided the fate of the elves. To which, all right, so there's an implication of providence there within the world. But I, I don't like that he says great minds plural because Iluvatar has decided the fate of the elves. So that was annoying. I wish that they would have said a great mind, one mind. But anyway, moving on, we get Elendil and he is with, he's he's at the camp where the, we're, we're going back now to the destruction of Mordor, the Southlands, where the volcanic eruption just happened. And Elendil and all the soldiers who are surviving are kind of setting up like a little refugee camp or the beginnings of one. And Muriel approaches on her horse with Isildur's other friend, the one that isn't dead, and they don't have Isildur with them because, if you remember, he was crushed under the debris of the house, and they have this moment where they're definitely, like, making a Theoden parallel. You know, remember when Theoden wakes up from being under the mind sway of Saruman in the Peter Jackson movies, and he says, Where is Theodred? Where is my son? Well, we have a moment similar to that right here. Elendil says something like, Where is Isildur? Where is my son? You know, he like says it to Muriel. And yeah, that's fine. Was, we, they could do the parallel there. They, they don't have him. They don't know where he is. I don't mind. People are complaining that Isildur has disappeared. They're like, oh, clearly even the most basic of mild watchers know that Isildur isn't dead. Well, I, I don't think that it's necessarily trying to throw us off. I think, I mean, like when Aragorn took a tumble off the cliff, the third book is called Return of the King. Everybody knew he wasn't dead. I don't really care that much. I think the show is going to be using it as some kind of character development for Isildur and possibly Elendil as well. That's not what is most egregious about this episode. Uh, we find out that Muriel, with the ash that went up into her face the scene prior, that she has some form of blindness. But they don't do a great job. Like, I had actually people... Like, people in my family asked me, like, so is she blind? Like, what's up? Because they said... She says... That she's seeing gray. They should have just said that she sees nothing or, or blackness. Because I feel like people were kind of confused there. Uh, so Muriel has lost her sight for that reason. Of course, that that didn't happen in the book. So I don't really know what they're going to be doing with that there. I don't know if it's going to be a permanent thing. It's certainly not something from the lore. So it's tough to make a prediction there. Whether that's going to stay or subside. I don't know. And then we get, they just kind of lead her back to the camp. Uh, Elendio leads her horse back to the camp because she can't see herself. And then it, it jumps over to, we have Galadriel who is now alone with uh, Theo. And they're walking around and Theo is angry. And he talks about taking some revenge on the orcs and not allowing this to happen and, and taking delight in killing them. And I appreciated we get like a little line from Galadriel where she says something along the lines of don't take pleasure in dark deeds or don't call dark deeds good. Like the killing of orcs is dark deeds, even though it's necessary. This was kind of something that goes along with that point that I was making on Twitter. I thought about 
doing it in my last podcast, but I just kind of, I didn't feel like adding the extra audio in the end. All of the characters within Middle Earth who are good should have, or, or the elves at least, because they have the prior knowledge and context for what these creatures are. Every orc in the Legendarium should be seen as nothing less than a tragedy. Now, it's necessary that they be removed. There should be no quarter when dealing with the orcs because like that great line from the peter jackson movies uh give them no quarter for you shall receive none but they still should be seen as a tragedy and there should be that level of hope there like could some beautiful you catastrophe end up in the long run saving these seemingly irredeemable people so i appreciated that line there like not to delight in dark deeds from galadriel it's very Tolkienian. Then we go over to the Har Harfoots, and they arrive at this part of their journey that they refer to as the Grove. And I thought it was kind of funny because this thing that seems like it's such a tremendous landmark to the Harfoots also seems to just be like maybe like five apple trees. <laughs> You know, it kind of reminded me of like the whole Horndon thing in the first two episodes. Like this, this town was very extremely close to Morgoth. And it looked like it was like a couple houses in a small village, you know, in some obscure part of the world. Like it, it just, they're like, oh, we finally gotten here to the grove. And it's like five trees, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it should be that important. But anyway, they get to the location that they're trying to get to and they find that these apple trees, this source of food that they were looking for, has been destroyed by falling debris from Mount Doom. And the stranger, he goes to, like, fix the tree. And there ends up being this weird scene where, like, it looks like he's fixing it, and then it ends up cracking and a branch falls off. And um, it almost crushes Nori and her little sister. And everybody's all, like, horrified. So at this point, the stranger just decides to leave. He's like, I'm causing too much trouble. And he has this little exchange with um, Sadak, who hands him this, like, piece of paper with information about the constellation that he's been looking for and following. If you remember, this was the thing that he carved into the, the log, and then the thing that was on the back of the shield of that woman with, uh, who was with the bald lady. So there, it has something, he has something to do with a star. And he's looking for this constellation, and Sadak, who is the lore master of the Harfoots, is telling him, like, none of our people have seen this constellation that you're looking for for, like, a thousand years. Now, you should go over there in that direction, which is in the direction of Greenwood the Great. So we got our, our first actual Mirkwood reference, as far as I know. And he sends the stranger off into the direction of what will eventually become Mirkwood. And... As he's leaving, Nori goes up to him and in this like act of good faith, she's like, here, have an apple. I don't know what this scene is supposed to represent, this slow motion handing off of the apple. I'm sure that there's some kind of deep, you know, foreshadowing to it, whether for good or for ill in the show. But yeah, he, he leaves. And then we have this kind of corny line delivered from Nori where she says, she's like, you were right. I'm just a hotterfoot. And the mother kind of scolds her for saying that. Whatever. I, I didn't, I didn't, I just, it was something about that little like rant that she went on. And I didn't get why 
she was so I didn't get why she was so turned against the stranger just because of the ice thing that happened in the last episode I get that it freaked her out but I mean like you snuck up on him you know it's not like he intentionally tried to hurt you so I don't know why she's all of a sudden so down on herself maybe it's the effect of like the trees being destroyed I don't know it just came off odd So then we go back to Galadriel, and she's with Theo, and now nighttime has fallen on the destroyed Southlands. And Galadriel and Theo are huddled together under this, like, ridge that's got tree roots sticking out of it that is very parallel to the hobbits in the Fellowship of the Ring being under that little tiny, like, plateau line where the Nazgul is, like, sniffing for them. Remember the... And then Frodo has that weird moment with, like, the centipede that crawls out. And he goes to put the ring on, and Sam stops him. And then uh, Pippin throws the bag. And they have an interesting little discussion here, folks. This uh, stirred up some controversy. Galadriel, Theo asks her if she lost anyone. And Galadriel gave the basic answer that we've already heard over the course of the show. She says her brother, Finrod. And then there's a pause. And then all of a sudden she says... And my husband. And you're like, what? And when I was watching it, I was like, excuse me? She says that Celeborn went off to war. Before she says that, sorry, she says that they met in a field and uh, she was dancing in that field. And then Celeborn went off to war and was never seen again. And there is absolutely no context for Celeborn to be going off to war and disappearing for that amount of time. This is like totally out of left field. Now, of course, we know he's not dead. He's going to come back somehow, but the manner in which he will come back, I can't even begin to speculate. Where did he go? How could he just disappear for that long, especially during a time of what should be peace after the the war in the first age is over? It just really came out of nowhere. It doesn't make any sense to me. There's no context for it. I saw somebody speculate maybe he's in the Undying Lands. Like, maybe he actually died and he'll get sent back. I think it was Nerd in the Rings who was like, maybe they'll do like a um, like a Glorfindel thing and he'll replace Glorfindel's story and he his great deeds earned him a trip back to Middle-earth uh, on a mission. I, I don't know, but I wouldn't like that either. That would be That would be silly too and just really out of the realm of the lore. But yeah, I, I clearly he's not dead. I don't think he's dead at all. So at least there's that. At first when she said it, I, I really thought he was dead. I was like, what? I <laughs> when I heard that, I was like, I really can't do this anymore. <laughs> this is too much. Um, but then she ended it off with, I never saw him again. And I was like, oh, so he's alive. Okay, all right. Well, at least he's alive, but it's still off way off and then uh they go on in their discussion and we get another more bits of dialogue that goes right with the quote from the return of the king that was in last week's episode she says there's powers beyond darkness that are working in this world and she basically says like we have to trust them and I, I appreciate that. You know, I like I like hearing stuff like that. The providence that is at work in the world that the darkness can't touch. I like hearing dialogue like that. So to the showrunners, if you ever want to like 
<laughs> start bringing people like me back around to the script again. Just keep inserting that kind of stuff in there. It's it's nice to hear. And then um, there's an orc that's kind of above them. Again, sniffing. We get that Nazgul parallel, though. And then we have another parallel from the two towers. Wow, I just said parallel real weird. We have another parallel from the two towers with the, what is it? What do you smell? Some orc says that. And then uh, there's a long pause. And the orc just goes, nothing but ashes. You know, it's that like real, it's that like perceived low class British accent that I really like that the, the orcs have. Nothing but ashes. So he doesn't sniff them, which I thought it was kind of silly because it was like, why were you standing there for so long then if you didn't smell anything? But fine. And then we go back over to the Kazadum storyline where Elrond is, they are defying the orders of King Doran, and Elrond and Prince Doran are down in the caves digging for Mithril themselves, by themselves. And Doran's getting tired, and he sits down. I, I wanted to mention this because I just was so annoyed by this for some reason, because it didn't make any sense at all. Doran sits down, and he's tired. Now, this is... Uh, preempting the discussion that they'll have about the uh, rock smashing challenge that they had in the first two episodes. So they're, the show writers are trying to bring that discussion up. And how they lead into it was so annoying to me. They're like sitting there and then Doran gets tired. He puts the thing down. He sits down on the rock and Elrond goes and offers him what looks like water. And Doran says, no, oh, he says something like, no, elf self-discipline is the key and i'm like not drinking water is self-discipline i don't understand was it alcohol in the pouch like for some reason that was just so annoying like i if it's alcohol then fine of course that line fits there but if it's water it doesn't fit at all why would you why would you not give yourself water a dumb thing to get tripped up over but i just was like annoyed <laughs> But anyway, moving on, they use that to shoehorn in the, what we all knew, I remember I said this from the beginning, that Elrond clearly let Doran win the exchange in the first two episodes in their little rock smashing competition. Elrond says that he let him win, and his goal was always just to talk to him, which we knew that, great. It's a nice little exchange between the two of them after that. It was fine, but just the one part with the water sack or the alcohol sack or whatever it was, it was just, what was in the pouch? Anyway, they smash through. They make a little hole in the wall. Doran goes and looks in. And is, it is this beautiful-looking, subterranean, hollowed-out place where there is Mithril running down the walls. And they're really excited. And Elrond looks in, and he thinks it's beautiful. And they're, all, they're both excited, and then all of a sudden they get caught by King Doran. And King Doran is not happy and he sends Elrond outside oh I forgot to mention too there was a interesting little exchange about secret names that the dwarves have and I appreciated that a lot because they're the the dwarves are very secretive you know they don't even like to share their language with other races so I enjoyed that little bit of intimacy that him and Elrond had I didn't get why Elrond wouldn't want to know his secret name he was like he says something like save it for the other side and I was like what other side <laughs> what other side are you talking about you know it's like some of the dialogue choices in this cave were 
a little annoying and then some are good. But anyway, they find the Mithril and then Dor- King Doran is really angry. He sends El, he throws Elrond out of Kazadum. And then Doran and Doran have in my opinion like tied with Galadriel's exchange with um Adar the best bit of dialogue in the show so far. They're they're talking together and it's it's just really raw and intimate and I really felt like I was plugged in to both characters at this point because this is and this is another point about the uh the Casa Doom storyline. This is by far the best storyline as far as getting to know characters goes intimately, emotionally. The characters Elrond and Doran have both been very vulnerable we know them both very well so this exchange that doran has with his father is like i'm there i'm plugged into it and there's a really great line about doran is talking about his son when his son was born he had a lung defect and he held him over a fire and kept his chin up and it was really uh you know like i felt like kind of touched by it like it was it was nice it was beautiful and it, it, the reason why it was beautiful is because I know these characters very well. They have been vulnerable. And another thing I really appreciated uh, about this episode, too, I think it actually came earlier and I forgot to mention it, was there was an Aule reference when he says that Aule made the dwarves from fire and rock, which, um, you know, I love mentions of the Valar by name. Uh, it, it's It's just... It's enjoyable for me as a fan, so I appreciate those references. But after this exchange that, sorry, during this exchange that he has with his father, Doran really upsets the king because he says that Elrond is a brother to him as if he had been fired in his mother's womb. And this really upsets the king. And he yells at him. And then Doran yells back and Doran says, you disgrace the crown you wear. And then um, the king gets really mad and rips this necklace that he's wearing off of his neck and throws it on the ground and apparently this necklace is given to the heir of Kazadum. so in this moment the king strips his son of his birthright which is pretty crazy pretty dramatic scene i liked i liked this exchange between them i thought it was well earned i feel like again like i said i feel like i know these characters one of my issues with this show is i feel like i don't know a lot of the characters intimately in in any kind of emotional sense and i'll i'll touch on that uh in a little bit let's move on (laughs) my uh my next bit of notes here (laughs) from the episode i literally just wrote bald lady so (laughs) i'm assuming this is the part where we go back to the um the grove and and we find that the the stranger had actually healed everything with the words that he was speaking to the tree when it cracked open earlier in the episode. Uh, all of the Harfoots wake up to a lush, green, beautiful, lively grove. So he clearly brought good to there, which would definitely lead me to believe that this is not Sauron. I don't think it's Sauron at all, but if you need further proof, I mean... Sauron only corrupts. The only beauty he can bring is beauty that further serves an evil cause, at least where he's at in the Second Age. You know, he, he's not going to be making things beautiful just for the sake of making them beautiful. So, yeah, again, further proof there. But, uh, so, Harfoots are there, they're collecting the apples, and nighttime falls, and then all of a sudden, the bald lady arrives there 
with her two companions. And they're looking at the grove that has just been made beautiful. And they are seeing evidence of magic that has been done there. They are seeing evidence of what is clearly a Maiar spirit that has been at work in the area. And I think that these individuals are searching for Sauron. And maybe they think that they have found him. Uh, because of the power that they're seeing in the wake of the stranger. Again, don't think the stranger's Sauron. And then they figure out like which direction that he went in. Um, the bald lady kind of points out into the distance and they start walking in that direction. And Nori, realizing that they're clearly looking for the stranger, she calls out to them to try and misdirect them to get them to go in another direction because she's worried about the stranger she knows he's good now because she's seen all of the good he can do she's trying to help him out and it's at this point that the priestess lady disappears and then she just pops up just like standing right over nori and the harfoots are freaking out you know they're waving fire in the lady's face and then nori's dad is saying that I guess he's going to split her head open or something. And this lady just kind of reaches out and puts the fire out on his stick. And then she absorbs the fire in her hand and blows it into the wagons of all of the Harfoots and lights their stuff up. And then I guess they dip out. And then we skip over to Elendil and Beric. Elendil is at this camp, the Numenorean camp, and it's it's up on a cliffside, and it's a really cool location wherever they're at, um, wherever they're filming. is dope. And the refugees and survivors are straggling in, and someone walks in with Beric, Isildur's horse, and he is in an uproar. And Elendil goes over and tries to calm him down, and the horse is, is really upset, and for some reason, I guess Elendil is like, wants him to calm down because he wants this. He sees Beric as like a little piece of what he believes is now his dead son. So he kind of desperately wants Beric to come home with him, and it, it was no use calming him down, so he, he lets Beric run off into the wilderness. Now, what I'm thinking is going to happen here is that Beric is going to end up finding Isildur, and we're going to have a parallel to what happens in the Two Towers, where Aragorn's horse finds him and trots him back to Helm's Deep. So we'll see if that happens. And then Elendil, he says, I, I should never have let the elf onto my ship. Which, all right, we have a kind of really upset Elendil here, and I'm expecting to see that his character arc will be him seeing that he was wrong to think what he's thinking right now uh, so we get a shot of the Numenorean camp we get a shot of the flag of Numenor this really cool blue and gold with the tree of Nimloth on it I really like that I thought that looked cool it was very much the the type of lofty kind of flag i would picture like when you read the acalabaith uh so i like that a lot theo goes into the injured people's camp because at this point uh after elendil says i should have never let the elf onto the ship as he's saying that galadriel is finding the camp so she arrives with theo and theo goes into the injured people tent as i said and what do you know bronwyn's okay again uh, she's fine, and so is Arondir, because there's really no cost in this show. Unless you're Muriel, who now can't see very good. 
Then Galadriel goes to speak with uh, Muriel, who is in this. The scene looks beautiful The in the backdrop. I'm not sure how much of this is real and how much of this is CGI, uh, but if it's a real on-set location, I mean, this it looks beautiful. Um, and she's up on this this rock, kind of perched over the cliffside, and she's got this thing wrapped around her head. And Elendil's trying to get her to get up so they can leave and put Middle Earth behind them. And at that point, Galadriel walks up to speak with the queen, and Elendil says with kind of disgust, "Galadriel." You know, like he's upset with Galadriel, he's upset with himself. And there's an interesting exchange with Galadriel and the Queen because the Queen says that she's going to come back to Middle Earth and she's going to punish the parties that are responsible for this. And she promised this she promises this to Galadriel and promises it on her being the son of and she says I thought this was interesting and I don't know why this happens because so she refers to her father in this moment as Ar in Ziladun, which is the westernist way of saying Tar Palantir. And I thought this was weird because her saying R in Zilladun signifies to me that she's having a her character is having a moment of evil but it also seems like she's doing what Galadriel wants her to do in coming back uh it doesn't seem like she's crossed into evil but maybe she will I just thought it was interesting that she used R in Zilladun instead of Tar Palantir here you know that's a that's that's a decision. That's a writing decision. So I want to know why that is. Is it because she shouldn't be helping Galadriel anymore? Is it because she shouldn't be coming back to Middle-earth with greater forces? I don't know. It's interesting. It's an interesting choice there by the writers. Because you remember, Tar is the elven way. It's it's the elven title for uh, the kings of Numenor. And Ar was the rejection of, it's, it's the Adunaic way of saying king or ruler. And then after this, we see, after Muriel makes this promise, we get Elendil who is crying. He is upset. He hears that Muriel wants to come back to Middle-earth. And then the camera pans over to him and you see that he's turned the other way and he's, he's, I guess he's looking in the direction of where they came from and he's crying. And I really thought that this cry scene was delivered extremely poorly. I didn't think that the camera angles were right. I didn't think that the music was right. I didn't think that it was properly timed. Yeah, I, I just thought it, it wasn't good. And break down kind of the cinematography of it but the bottom line is, is it just wasn't filmed properly this scene it's like the angle's weird and the music is not there it just falls flat and it's so and it's so quick you don't really get to truly take in the moment so yeah i didn't i didn't like the elendial cry scene i thought it was bad then we go back over to the harfoots right and they're kind of they're cleaning up the mess that this bald lady has inflicted upon them and all of their possessions. And Nori's dad gives this speech that was kind of endearing. You know, I appreciated the line where he almost 
seems to break the fourth wall and he says with hearts bigger than our feet I think there's people who really don't like that line but I I thought it was very endearing I thought it was fine what I don't like though is why all of a sudden they all decide to go search for the stranger this doesn't make any sense to me so it makes sense that Nori and Poppy want to go find the stranger Nori's like I gotta go warn him he's clearly in trouble these people are after him and that makes sense right then all of a sudden nori's stepmother decides to go with her not her like biological dad but her stepmother decides to go with her which i'm not saying that like step parents don't love their stepchildren like one of their own i'm just saying like this woman is now deciding to leave her daughter her biological daughter to go follow her stepdaughter into the unknown you know, they, they've been all about not going off the path. And now all of a sudden she wants to do it. It was just it was just doesn't kind of doesn't make sense that the mother would want to leave her child and go do that. But OK, so. All right. The mom wants to go. <laughs> but it doesn't stop there. That lady who wanted them dead <laughs> earlier in the season, the woman who was telling Sadak to take the wheels off their carts and leave them behind to to be eaten or killed or whatever, now decides that she's just an incredibly selfless person and wants to go with them. And I'm like, what? (laughs) What? And not only her, but Sadak, who is the leader of this tribe these people are now leaderless uh he he decides to leave and go with them as well but the line that really 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 i mean but the whole scene is ridiculous but what really upset me the most was when sadak was like um i forget the the old lady's name who wanted them dead who decides to go with them but he says uh i think it's malba he says just once malba i wish you weren't right We've seen her not be right. She wasn't right when she said to leave them behind <laughs> and and kill them. Like, what? This woman is clearly not always right all the time. This whole scene was a mess. Like, right after he says the heart's bigger than our feet line, this whole scene just takes a downturn. It is out of control. So, yeah, I really, really didn't like that. I would have been fine with Nori and Poppy going off by themselves. That's, I mean, you knew that was going to happen. It's the Frodo and Sam thing. But now all of a sudden they're all going. It doesn't make any sense. Who is leading the people when they're left behind? Just it's so stupid. Anyway, all right, now let's go back to the Numenorean camp. Now, Muriel has left with Elendil and her squad of soldiers. And the remaining folks, the Numenorean soldiers that are still there, are going to be directing the survivors of the Southlands to Pelargir, which, love that, love that reference. Pelargir is a Numenorean colony in this show. And um, if you remember, Pelargir is where Aragorn arrives with the Army of the Dead, the Oathbreakers in the books. So I liked that, that world building they're doing here. And Galadriel is there and she goes in and finds an an injured Halbrand in this tent. (laughs) And another thing I thought of, and I think I'm just being picky, but Halbrand is in this tent that has the sigil on it that he had wrapped around his neck. And I'm thinking, I'm like, when did they get the time to build this tent for him that has his specific sigil on it? Like... 
they find out who he is and then the Southlands just gets immediately destroyed. Like, who sat down after that whole thing happened and sewed this onto a tent for him? When did that happen? And he's just in there. You know, he, he's in there and he's injured. They said that they found him on the road. He's got like a big gash in his stomach. And Bronwyn says that the the wound soured overnight. So Halbrand has an infected gash in his stomach. And Galadriel, who was already planning on going to Gilgalad, is now going to take Halbrand with her. And I'm assuming that they go to Eregion because I think that's where they are in the trailer for the next episode. But she never says that they're going to Eregion. She had originally been going to Linden, but either way, it doesn't matter. It's still super far. Linden is extremely far, and Eregion's far too. It's a little bit closer, but not by much. And you mean to tell me that Halbrand, with his infected gash, is just going to be making this trip on horseback? Which... I mean, so you have Gandalf who, you remember his comment to Pippin, how far is it? And he says, three days as the Nazgul flies. You know, that's, he rode for about three days on Shadowfax to get from Rohan to Minas Tirith. So, I mean, Eregion is even farther than that. I would say, I would say double. You know, you have, like, they're going from, Galadriel and Halbrand are going to be going from, like, the Ithilien area right outside Mordor, all the way up to Eregion. That's, I mean, not riding Shadowfax. That's uh, that's at least, I mean, we're talking over a week. So I better see how you're keeping that wound from getting grosser, Galadriel. You better be rubbing some elven dirt in it or something. Uh, he better be Sauron at this point if he makes it to Eregion without dying. All right, and then we we go over to the dwarves again. And Doran is discussing with his wife why he's upset at his father and his wife. We get kind of this dark side of Dissa a little bit, which I, I appreciate. I actually like Dissa's character and she is goading her husband to continue to agitate in an independent way from his father. You know, she says stuff like this is going to be our kingdom, our Mithril. And your father's not going to be, be able to do anything about it, which uh, I liked that. That, that, was, that was an interesting bit of development with her character. And then we pan down below to the mines that Elrond and Doran were in earlier. And King is standing there with that infected leaf, which we're going to talk about this in a second uh but the king is standing there with the infected leaf and he tosses it well the leaf that's no longer infected and he tosses it into the hole and he says seal it up and then there's an echo like a seal it up seal it up <laughs> there's an echo that goes into where the subterranean mithril extravaganza is happening and then the leaf continues to drop pretty far down and it hits the floor and burns up something burns it up and then we get the big reveal it's doran's bane um and he roars and then you know the camera pans back to mordor to where we see Adar and he's with his crew and it looks so funny because it's like it's just that guy Waldrag standing there and everything's like destroyed and he's with the orcs and he's doing these little chants and he says uh Adar king of the lord of the southlands 
And then Adar looks at him and he goes, this is no longer called the Southlands or something like that. And he's like, well, what should we call it? And then the camera pans up and then it says the Southlands in the air (laughs) of this shot. And then the word, the words kind of burn up and then it says Mordor. And you're like, oh, the big reveal. Here it is. If you didn't know, I audibly laughed out loud at that part. That was corny. I didn't like that at all. All right. So I kind of sped through that last bit there because I really want to spend the last bit of this podcast discussing what I really did not like about this episode. Now, I touched on the whole Celeborn thing in the beginning. I really didn't like that. That was the first big strike for me. Celeborn should not be gone for a huge gap of time in Middle-earth. It just doesn't make any sense. We don't have any context for that. So that was the first big strike. And then the second big strike, and I skipped over it, but we're going to talk about it now. The Mithril healing the leaf after King Doran says no to Elrond before they go down to dig for it themselves. Doran goes back to his chambers and he's really upset again with this story that doesn't make any sense. I don't know why the elves are needing to heal their land and themselves and restore their light so quickly. You know, it it just doesn't, like, why? Why do you need to do this? Unless it's a lie of Sauron, like trying to make them believe that they need this mithril. So I was given the show the benefit of the doubt. I was like, maybe this whole thing is a lie. Maybe the Mithril doesn't really do anything. Maybe there isn't a Silmaril in it. And they doubled down on it. Doran throws the piece of Mithril across the table and it lands next to the infected leaf. And then the infection starts to go away. And that tells me at the very least that this Mithril storyline is not a lie from Sauron. And that this legend about... The essence of a Silmaril being in Mithril has to be true. And I hated that. That made me so mad. And I I don't know why I I expected them to tell me that maybe it was all a lie. I was was really on some hopium with that one. I, I wanted the whole thing to be some conjured scheme of Sauron. Him knowing that Mithril doesn't really do anything and it's not really magical in that sense. That's what I wanted, and that's clearly what I'm not going to get, because Sauron isn't in that room, you know, performing any illusions on the leaf. The leaf healed when it was next to the Mithril, and yeah, that really upset me, and it made me go, man, they seem to just kind of be going through with the stuff that I really didn't like about this story this season. And again, like I've said before, they haven't explained why the elves have such a problem. They haven't shown me why there's an issue. All they've shown me is a dying tree. They haven't shown me anything else. It's like... It's like in the Peter Jackson movies when it, that was like the one thing that was weird about the Peter Jackson movies is you're like, why is Arwen dying? It doesn't make any sense, which I love the Peter Jackson movies, but that one aspect of it that didn't make any sense is has now become the entire structure holding up the story of the first season of The Rings of Power. That's a huge problem for me. And I really, like I said, was giving the show the benefit of the doubt before, but it's... Uh, 
for me now it's become a problem because that's shown me that like all right the things that i didn't want to happen are now clearly happening and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna not watch the last episode i want to see how they close the show out but i've let go of a lot of my emotional hopes for this show i think that they could turn the story around in the second season and give me something that is more akin to what I recognize as a story from the second age. Because again, I think that the second season is going to be focusing on Anatar and all of his tricks and everything. And that's where the real meat of this show is going to come from. So I think that they have potential to hook me in the future but right now I've, I've just been really upset with the show and uh, and another thing with the again with the Celeborn stuff was just ridiculous the a good way to summarize it is that the sacrifices that I have been had grace with with the lore do not seem to be paying me off in dividends with a good story if that makes sense and that leads me into another thing I wanted to say about this show I was watching the newest episode of House of the Dragon recently, and I don't think House of the Dragon is great or anything. It's fine, but I was watching the newest episode, and they were having a dinner party with Viserys had forced everyone to gather around and have dinner with him in um, in a manner that is very... It reminds me of, I, I believe it was Henry VI who had forced uh, all of his quarreling factions in the Wars of the Roses to come together and have this forced day of love. And that's what that reminded me of in the show. And Viserys, of course, he's doing this because he knows he's dying and he wants to have one last moment with the people in his life that are important to him. And there is one moment in that episode where Viserys stands up and he delivers this really great speech where he he says you know something along the lines of like my brother my wife my daughter my sons my children my grandchildren my friends you know can you be that for me in this moment if not for the realm but for me and it's actually received by the people in the room Rhaenyra stands up and she says something nice about his wife whose name I, I can't remember and in turn the wife stands up and says something nice back to Rhaenyra and they're doing it on behalf of Viserys and Viserys after that happens and the music picks up and the dinner party kind of begins and there's a lot of ambiance and everyone's talking people are laughing Viserys in his head you get this like point of view shot from Viserys as he's kind of slumping back into his chair. He's, you can tell he, he just put everything he had into that speech. And he's sinking back into the chair and he's kind of sinking back into his like sickness and his ailments. But at the same time, he's having just a moment of like, I was successful in this moment. I brought all my family together. It was like he gave everything he had for this one moment. And as I was watching that, I really connected with that I connected with him emotionally I I saw him emotionally naked you know I, I saw his failures I saw his vulnerabilities I saw his successes and I saw his his life you know the the, the intimacy of kind of a person staring death in the face and just like their last desperate attempts of 
of going out on a good note. And I really felt that. And it was a, a scene that really gripped me. And I realized after I watched that, that I did not have anything comparable in the rings of power to that scene. Nothing. Not one character. There is not one character that I feel that kind of understanding of. Really feeling their pain while you're watching it. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of excuses that you could make. Like the Rings of Power has a lot of characters that they have to introduce. Uh, House of the Dragon has less. So it's easier to really emotionally connect with some characters. But that's been one of the major successes of the Elrond Doran storyline is that you have something that still isn't comparable to the scene that I had in House of the Dragon but I feel like I know those characters a little bit better because I've seen them be vulnerable to one another. I've seen them struggle in different ways. I think one of the problems with the Rings of Power is we've spent so much time focusing on Galadriel who is not very relatable you know she's not she is the protagonist but she's also been annoying and she's been annoying because we want to see like character development in her but at the same time you have to be rooting for your main character so the show has spent so much time developing a character that we're not even rooting for and not enough time on characters that you actually feel emotionally connected to and you don't even have to be rooting for them you know i uh, throughout watching house of the dragons i i wasn't necessarily rooting for viserys because i thought at a lot of moments he was weak but i still felt for him in that last episode because i felt like i knew him i saw his his humanity and all right yeah galadriel's an elf but i could see some level of some weakness, some vulnerability. The show hasn't done a good enough job at that, in my opinion. So I don't feel as attached to a lot of these characters. And then combine that with the fact that they really do have to introduce so many different characters because, you know, that's what Tolkien's stories are. There's a lot of different people involved. However, a lot of characters we're being introduced to in the Rings of Power don't actually exist in the lore. So but I think that that's been one of the to wrap up what I was saying there, I think that that's been one of my biggest disappointments of the show because when I watched that and when I felt that for Viserys, it really highlighted for me what I haven't felt while watching The Rings of Power. And uh, yeah, that about wraps up my review. I don't feel super excited for the finale. I don't think that they're going to... I don't have high hopes for me being satisfied with how they're going to wrap this up. I do think that the second season has some potential if they do it the right way. But yeah, I don't feel like the first season was done correctly. And uh, yeah, that wraps up my commentary for episode seven. Uh, let me know what you thought. And as always, folks, thank you for listening.